morning, Bethel. Our scripture reading uh, for this morning is found on page 594 in the Pew Bible. It's Isaiah 34 and 35. So if you could turn there. And if you don't mind um, joining me and standing in honor of God's word as I read. Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear, and all that fills it, the world, and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations, and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction, and has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood and their soil shall be gorged with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Eden shall be turned into pitch and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness It's nobles. There's no one there to call it a kingdom. And all its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals and abode for ostriches. And wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. There the owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these shall be missing. None shall be without her mate. For the mouth of the Lord has commanded, and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them. His hand has portioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation they shall dwell in it. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. 
Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is God's word. You may be seated. Okay, so um, in 2001, Lance Armstrong uh, said in a, I don't know if it was an autobiography or biography, uh, it's not about the bike. Quite simply, I believed I had a responsibility to be a good person, and that meant fair, honest, hardworking, and honorable. If I did that, if I was good to my family, true to my friends, if I gave back to my community or to some cause, if I wasn't a liar, a cheat, or a thief, then I believed that that should be good enough. At the end of the day, if there was indeed some body, capital B, or presence standing there to judge me, I hope I would be judged on whether I had lived a true life, not on whether I believed in a certain book or whether I had been baptized. If there was indeed a God at the end of my days, I hoped he didn't say, but you were never a Christian, so you're going the other way from heaven. If so, I was going to reply, you know what? You're right. Fine. That's a pretty common sentiment in our day and age, isn't it? Some are quite a bit more caustic about their pushback to the idea that there's one God and that he's just and has wrath and judgment against rebellion and sin. So the famous atheist philosopher Richard Dawkins, um, you don't have to wonder what he's thinking, um, like really thinking, He wrote this in The God Delusion. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. That also, maybe not quite that extreme, but some people feel that way, especially about the Old Testament, the God of the Old Testament. Mean and nasty, hair trigger, temper, New Testament. Jesus is nice and meek and mild, you know, with the feathered hair and the beard. Did you notice the year that that biography came out? Or autobiography of Lance Armstrong? It's 2001. 
Do you know what happened in 2012? All of his Tour de France wins were stripped from him because of a doping scandal. So one lesson is we should make sure we rely on the solid ground of the Word of God and not on popular opinion for understanding reality, right? But two, think about this. Lance Armstrong's sentiment seems so plausible, especially if you are talking to your nice coworkers or neighbors or family members that don't believe in Jesus, don't trust him. Here's the question. Is there hope for him now? Is there hope for Lance Armstrong now? Because, see, he said, I believed I had a responsibility to be a good person. Fair, honest, honorable. If I wasn't a liar, a cheat, then I believe that should be good enough. I hoped I'd be judged on whether I lived a true life. Uh oh. He's in trouble if his system, salvation system, is reality. So even though chapter 34 and the wrath and judgment of God is such a bitter pill to swallow, a hard thing for us to, to face up to, actually, it's the only system where there's any hope for us if we're honest with ourselves. So we need to make sure we take our cues from God's word that doesn't change, that's not fickle, not blowing with the winds of the times. And Isaiah 34 and 35 are going to help us do that. So big picture orientation. We've been walking through the book of Isaiah. Now we come to the end of a major section that runs from chapter 28 to 35. And what we've seen so far is how Judah, southern kingdom, under threat of Assyria, the big bully, you know, superpower of the time, they, Judah was afraid and they ran to other saviors instead of looking to the Lord. They ran to Egypt. And you know what? We've seen that there's nothing new under the sun. We can do the very same things under threat. Rather than looking to the Lord, rather than running to him as our refuge, we run to other things. We self-medicate. We look to other false saviors. But God alone is the true and living God. God saves. That's the whole point of the book of Isaiah. That's the point of this series. He's our true refuge and strength. And those who actually run to him find peace and rest, true rest and true security. Those who run elsewhere soon find themselves disappointed and ashamed So those dynamics play out in this life, but they also ultimately play out at the final judgment. So if if you have turned away, if we have, any of us has turned away from God, gone elsewhere for our source of strength and security, we reject, forsake the Lord, it will not go well for you at the final judgment. If you have trusted in the Lord, then your eternal future is radiantly bright and the best is yet to come. So that's what our chapters are all about this morning. And so Isaiah is, is pressing us. He does this repeatedly in the, in the book, pressing us toward ultimate eternal reality. You know, we live down here so often, you know, it's the, kinda, it's the way we deal with death. We don't want to think about it. We just turn up the volume, and then you go to a funeral, and all of a sudden you have to consider it. Well, even greater than physical death is ultimate death. These big pictures, God wants to raise our 
heads and say, you've got to look at reality here. You've got to deal with reality here. So for Judah, the threat of Assyria was real. They needed to trust in the Lord. There was actually an infinitely greater threat than Assyria. It actually made Assyria like a flea bite in comparison. If you reject the Lord, his judgment is infinitely worse than Assyrians, Assyria's. And for us, you know, the threat might be cancer or unemployment or persecution or death or whatever. There's, those threats are real, and in and through them we need to trust the Lord. But there's an infinitely greater threat that makes those threats like mosquito bites in comparison. So Isaiah is just pressing us to the ultimate issues and raising our gaze to God and his character, both the severe, the severity of his, of his judgment and the wonder of his kindness and grace. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. So the outline's a little bit more detailed than usual, but don't miss the two made headings, okay? So uh, we don't have the screen up tonight, uh, this morning, but there's an outline in the bulletin if that's helpful. But just notice the two headings. Final judgment is coming. That's chapter 34. Don't turn away from it. And then secondly, on the back there, fullness of joy forever is coming. Don't turn away from it. Chapter 35, okay? So first off, let's dive in. Final judgment is coming. Don't turn away from it. Uh, Look at the scope here in these first few verses. Draw near, O nations, to hear. Give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. Ah, it's just a horrendous, it's a horrific picture. Now, certainly some aspects of this are poetic, but it doesn't... You can't downplay any of the horror of this by writing it off to poetry. So look again at verse 1. Not just Judah, not just Assyria is in view here. It's all the nations. Isaiah is saying, listen up, and we're included here. You and I, we need to hear this. We need to face it. We need to come to terms with the reality of final judgment. Don't turn away. Don't get squirrely and turn up the volume and get busy. You need to face this. In fact, this actually happened to me as I was preparing. Um, I was looking for a quote, and I I ended up reading this um, little article by Randy Alcorn, who's done a lot of thinking about heaven, um, and in this article about hell. And it really just, it kind of arrested my attention. thought, you know what? I, I need this. As much as I don't like to consider the reality of hell, I need this. My neighbors need me to take these realities seriously. So just listen to this little quote that was so helpful to me. This is just a little testimony of how facing reality, in its, even when it's hard, is really helpful. So he wrote this. He wrote, Just as Satan and God are not equal opposites, neither is hell the equal opposite of heaven. God has no equal as a person, and heaven has no equal as a place. Hell will be agonizingly dull, small, and insignificant, without company purpose or accomplishment. It will not have its own stories. It will be a mere footnote on history. I don't believe hell is a place where demons take delight in punishing people since hell was made to punish demons, not reward them. And there will be no delight in hell. 
People will not take solace by commiserating since there will be no solace. More likely, each person remains in solitary confinement. Remember the rich man? Luke 16. Both heaven and hell touch earth, an in-between world leading directly into one or the other. What tragedy that this life is the closest non-believers will ever come to heaven. What consolation that this present life is the closest believers will ever come to hell. That was helpful to me. I realized, you know what? I, I ought to think about and get these great realities in front of my face more often. So here we're doing it this morning, and we're going to want to turn away because these words are offensive. They run against the grain of our souls. Look at verse 2. The Lord is enraged. Literally, he has rage against all the nations, and he's furious against all their hosts. That's a really strong word. Does that bother you? Rage and fury? Is that the God you believe in? See, we, we at worst deny, but oftentimes we just kind of ignore and hope it goes away. We don't like it. We never press into the fact that we don't like it. Should we? we wouldn't say that we're doing this designer religion. We take the parts that we like and we leave out the stuff that's distasteful to us. So we need to press in. Like, do you try to whether actively or passively, do you try to deny to God the very thing that you so indulge in yourself? Our judicial sentiments are so strong. And, and it's not a bad thing across the board. Think about, this, like, think about the sweetest mama bear type. Okay, you could think of like this, you know, well, it's, you know, for the MMA fighter, the boxer, like he gets this. No, I'm talking, the sweetest mother in the crowd here, you mess with her babies and she's going to come out swinging. Why? Because of love? Oh, so love and wrath are not polar opposites. We need to think about these things. And you know what? We're so hypocritical. We, we, again, we want to deny to God the very emotion, sentiment, that we preserve, and his is not a hair trigger temper. It's not like ours in that sense, but we, we are so protective. We, 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 we take the slights against our dignity so seriously. I think I've told you before about this stupid thing that up, rose up in me in, at the grocery store one time, you know, the self-checkout line. You know how it's, it's like you stand in one spot, and it goes like you're first to go left or right, right? So I'm doing that, and, you know, so-and-so. And I kind of had, like, the grubby Saturday clothes on, and, you know, this guy, he's a little older than me, dressed a little more dignified, he just, like, jumped right in, like, oh. And I, I'm, like, seeing this stuff rise up in my heart, like, oh, my, okay, mister, you know. And, like, this is a grocery store line. Who cares? But wh- how have you reacted when you got cut off in traffic? I mean, talk about hair trigger temper. Now, if you've genuinely been sinned against it, like dealt some injustice, there is an appropriate righteous anger because we are beings made in the image of God and we've got dignity and worth and value. So there is such a thing as righteous anger. Now, 
think about this. If you have some dignity and worth that if it's slighted, there's an appropriate response of righteous anger. How worthy is God? How much value is there in his person? And if he is used and abused and slighted and offended and belittled and used like a tool, what should his response be? Oh, doesn't matter. Should he be indifferent? Indifferent? Like, if there's injustice and wickedness in this world in relation to him and in relation to his creatures that he made in his image, how should he respond to that? Indifference? So we need to make sure that we're not blinded by maybe our own cultural lenses, you know, this time in history, especially with the ease in the West and so forth. Listen, listen. Miroslav Volf was a, I think he's still a professor at Yale in theology, and he lived in Croatia in a time where he saw some horrific stuff in war and against his own people, his own family members. So he writes about um, a more pacifist position, and I, I'm not raising this to kick up that debate, whether there's such a thing as just war or whatever. He's just talking about Christians and not taking vengeance, okay? So listen, he says, my thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief, requires a belief in divine vengeance. Does that sound like a contradiction to you? My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. To the person who is inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone, which is where a paper, he writes in parenthesis, that underlies this chapter was originally delivered. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of the lecture, a Christian attitude toward violence. The thesis, we should not retaliate since God is perfect non-coercive love. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. Did you catch that? It takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to go, oh, God accepts everybody tolerant, and we should be too. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die, that thesis. As one watches it die, one will do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. And then he writes, in a world of violence, it would not be worthy of God not to wield the sword. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end to violence, the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. So he has rage. He is furious. Let's not judge the word of God. Let's not try to judge God. The Word of God and God Himself judges us. We are not the ones who decide reality. God is reality and He shapes reality 
and we ought to conform to him. We're not the judges of God. We're not the arbiters of reality. We're not the ones who determine what's just and unjust. So I, I told this story several years ago. It definitely bears repeating. I heard it from Don Carson years ago. Um, so he talks about these hippies in the, the Louvre in France, the art museum. Okay? Nothing against hippies. If you wear one, I think hippies are cool. Um, <laughs> I don't know how I'd look in bell-bottoms, but... So these hippies are in the Louvre, and these hippies, unlike, I'm sure, other good, good old hippies that you know, they were very uncouth, okay? So they were being rude and obnoxious. They're making these snide comments as they walk through this, you know, like, this is like the art capital of the world as far as this um, museum is concerned. All these masterpieces they knew nothing about, and they're, they have no appreciation. They're making these snide comments, and the curator of the museum is just like standing back as long as he can, and finally, when he can stand it no longer, he approaches the young Americans, and he said, Gentlemen, in this museum, it is not the paintings that are being tested. Do you get it? In this life, it's not God who is being tested. Just like those masterpieces were masterpieces, whether the hippies acknowledged it or not. God is God, whether we acknowledge it or not. C.S. Lewis wrote similarly, the ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He, the modern man, is the judge. God is in the dock. That's the, you know, where the person that's going to be examined sits, you know, in a courtroom. He's, he is quite a kindly judge, if the modern man. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he's ready to listen. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. When we do that, even when we slip into that, even though we know that's insanity, why? If I was... See, we, we think, we can, we can so easily be deceived to think that, you know what, I'm more loving. I, I wouldn't do it that way. I'm more loving. I'm actually more just than God. Do we really, do we really <laughs> know better than he how to run his universe? What if you did have that kind of power, you with the way that you reacted to getting cut off in traffic? Aren't you glad you're not God? Or somebody else isn't because you'd already be smoked because you cut them off in traffic accidentally. <clears throat> so, Reinald Niebuhr, I don't know, 50 years ago or so, said, People want a God without wrath who brings people without sin into a kingdom without judgment to a Christ without a cross. Dorothy Sayers, friend of or lived by the time of C.S. Lewis, a friend of his, aptly put it, we have declawed the lion of Judah and made him a house cat for pale priests and pious old ladies. No, no offense to old ladies. I guess I'd be the equivalent of a priest. I'm not a priest, but you know, I don't take offense. Okay, so King Jesus is not a house cat. 
We dare not try to tame or domesticate the lion of Judah. So look at reality here. Let's keep going. What's the scope? It's not just all the nations. It's all the host of heaven. Look at verse 4. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Okay, we want to turn away, but God won't let us. He loves us enough to make us look reality in the face, and he does it repeatedly. And you know what? This is picked up in Revelation. So it's not just buried somewhere in Isaiah in some obscure chapter. Revelation 6, just listen to this. Look at full in the face. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell as this fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand The same image of reality, and we need to look at full in the face. God, the author, so you have this rolling up of the scroll idea in the sky. I think that's more than just a visual picture. It means that God, the author, will determine when the story is over. He will roll up the scroll one day, close the book, as it were, and say, the end. And that's either the end, the end, or it's the end, the beginning. So no heavenly powers, no other so-called gods will have any ability to stay his hand. Now the text moves from heavens to the earth. The sword of God's judgment touches down on earth. I mean, we want some good news, don't we? Don't you want to rush to chapter 35? But God has more about the final judgment he wants us to face. So look at verse 5. Behold, it descends, this sword descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I've devoted to destruction. The Lord is a sword. And this... Oh, this sacrificial language. This is the stuff that happened on the altar. These portions were God's portions on the altar with the, the sacrifice of lambs and goats. The Lord has a sacrifice. He has rage. He has a sword. He has a sacrifice. He has, verse 8, a day of vengeance. Basra, by the way, in verse 6 there, is the capital of Edom. So we're still focused on Edom. He has a sacrifice there. The Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And Edom is going to just be turned into a wasteland. So we don't have any connotations with Edom, probably, right? But the, Isaiah's audience sure did. And actually, it's meaningful for us, even though I don't, I don't know if I've ever met an Edomite. Um, the Edomites were the descendants of Esau, right? So in the story of the Old Testament, they were stubbornly hostile to God's people when the Israelites were brought out of Egypt and they're sojourning to the promised land, they asked Edom, like the king of Edom, can we please pass through your land? We won't attack you. We won't take your stuff. We won't, like, we just need to get through. And they met resistance. They met armed resistance. And they were forced to travel a longer way around. Over and over again in the Old Testament, they are seen to be the enemies of God's people. And so they're used here as a sort of shorthand for the enemies of God, enemies of God's people. 
So those who get in the way of his pilgrims who are seeking first his kingdom and heading home. So do you see the language that's used here, this sacrificial language, a sword, a sacrifice? Judgment's not just a matter of justice, it's a matter of worship. So you either accept a sacrifice of a savior, the lamb of God, slaughtered in your place for your sins, or you become the sacrifice, paying for your own sins. Which one do you want? Okay, can we move on to the good news? No, not yet. There's more we need to see about the coming final judgment. Look at verse 9. There's this picture of a smoking wasteland. The Lord is painting a picture he wants us to see. The hawk, this is really weird. Why are we talking about porcupines? Lord, what's going on here? The hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. Guess what? You know what this is? This is great that it's happening on 1025. Do you know what this is? This is Halloween scene. This is a Halloween landscape scene. The creepy animals. That's the picture that's being painted here. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. Do you know where those two words are are used? Confusion and emptiness? Genesis 1. In the beginning, spirit hovering over the waters and it's formless and void. Chaotic and it's empty. And judgment means God's going to undo creation. He's going to decreate, turn it into a wasteland. Formless and void at creation became ordered and full. It was beautiful. That's God's design. Sin comes in to that perfect paradise, vandalizes that perfect peace, and the result of sin and its just judgment is a return to chaos and emptiness. That happens personally. It happens interpersonally. It happens in the world around us. Look around. Chaos and emptiness, right? Verse 12, it's nobles, there aren't any to speak of. Princes are nothing, thorns and thistles over its strongholds, nettles and thistles. By the way, I'm going to just insert some good news here just because it's encouraging. Um, Genesis 3.18, thorns and thistles, the ground shall bring forth for you curse language because Adam listened and ate the fruit, rebelled. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, shall eat the plants of the field. This is a cursed place this world. But do you know what? What crown did Jesus wear on his head en route to the cross? Hmm. He took those thorns for us on his head. They were lifted from the ground, the cursed ground, placed on Jesus's head. And so now we're going to sing in a couple of months, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Joy to the world. That idea actually came from a friend of mine, so thanks, Drew. So more about that good news in a minute. We get to chapter 35, but look at it again. It shall be the haunt of jackals. Okay, you see, this is the Halloween scene. This is this, ooh, you know, black kind of spooky thing. It's where it's all headed. That's where things go. That's where they end up without God. And there's no way around it. So he ends this section with this certainty and finality in verses 16 to 17. Look at it. Seek and read from the book of the Lord. It's written in. You can't, no eraser. Not one of these shall be missing. Even though it's formless and void, the Lord is doing this 
with precision and detail. None shall be without her mate. Like, it's not like he just says, okay, fine, just I'm going to get busy elsewhere. No, this is judgment, and I'm overseeing it, and it's going to get its just desserts. We are, or those who rebel against the Lord. Okay, so that's where it's all headed. There's no way around it. For the mouth of the Lord has commanded, verse 16, and his spirit has gathered them, so the certainty is there. He's cast a lot for it. His hand has portioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever, these, you know, the unclean, kind of scary animals, jackals and such, um, owls. From generation to generation, they shall dwell in it, irreversible, forever, final, certain. So the judgment is coming. God is God of wrath. So C.S. Lewis has some helpful wisdom here. In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? If, and this is something you may need to share with your friend who's really repulsed by the idea of hell. Okay, what are you asking God to do? And here's what C.S. Lewis says, to wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? Is that what you're asking? But he has done so on Calvary. Are, are you asking God to forgive them? Again, the cross, they will not be forgiven. Are you asking that they be left alone? Alas, I'm afraid that's what he does. He ultimately gives us what we want. So, God has wrath. Of course he does. You can't have wrath without love. Remember the mama bear? I mean, you hear those weird stories of the mom, like, you know, beats up this big tough guy because he's, he's messing with her babies. Um, so, I'm giving quotes here, but this is just because these things help us deal with the emotional stuff of the doctrine of hell and the wrath of God and judgment. Um, Becky Pippert writes, think how we feel. You can't have love without wrath. Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign, benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger, anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is, and the final form of hate is indifference. God's not indifferent to evil. It's because he's so loving. Um, and then Tim Keller tells a story of this uh, successful young man, Ivy League MBA grad, who came to his office and he had what seemed to be some intense spiritual interest, even though he didn't have any Christian background, so he said he's ready to embrace the gospel. And there was this final obstacle. So he said to Tim Keller, he said, you said that if we do not believe in Christ, we're lost and condemned. I'm sorry, I just can't buy that. I work with some fine people who are Muslim, Jewish, or agnostic. I can't believe that they're going to hell just because they don't believe in Jesus. I can't reconcile the very idea of hell with a loving God, even if, if he's holy, too. So Keller says, Moderns reject the idea of final judgment and hell. Thus, it's tempting to avoid such, such topics. But neglecting the unpleasant doctrines of the historic faith will bring about counterintuitive consequences. There is an ecological balance to scriptural truth that must not be disturbed. This is so helpful. If an area is rid of its predatory or undesirable animals, the balance of that environment may be so upset that the desirable plants and animals are lost. 
through overbreeding with a limited food supply, the nasty predator that was eliminated actually kept in balance the number of other animals and plants necessary to that particular ecosystem. In the same way, if we play down bad or harsh doctrines within the store of Christian faith, we will find to our shock that we have gutted all our pleasant and comfortable beliefs too. The loss of the doctrine of hell and judgment and the holiness of God does irreparable damage to our deepest comforts our understanding of God's grace and love and of our human dignity and value to him to preach the good news, we must preach the bad. So the final judgment is coming. We dare not turn away from it unless it is to run, to turn away and run to Jesus as our only hope for refuge from that coming storm. And when Jesus is our Savior and our refuge, then there is another thing coming. It's fullness of joy forever. And we dare not lose sight of that either. Okay, so let's look at that now in chapter 35. Verse 1, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. This is like miracle growth stuff here. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. Like, how's this going to happen? Well, the glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. Lebanon was like a vacation spot. Carmel and Sharon. The majesty of them given to this wilderness, dry land, desert place. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Okay, so do you see how the gift of the glory of God, the seeing of the glory of God changes everything? That's the key to those miraculous changes in verse 1. So where in Isaiah do we see the glory of God God revealed? Well, if we were to keep reading, flip ahead to Isaiah 40. We're going to get here, Lord willing, on the Sunday before Christmas. Appropriately, Isaiah 40. Look at verses 3 to 5. A voice cries. Who's that? If you know the storyline of the Bible, it's John the Baptist, right? A voice cries in the wilderness. Remember back to what we just looked at in 35.1? In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert, desert, a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. John the Baptist was that voice crying in the wilderness. And he was making way, making ready by calling people to repentance to get their hearts ready to receive this visit from the Lord. He's getting them ready for the Lord to arrive, to show his glory, to show up. The glory of the Lord was revealed. How? In the first coming of Christ. And when he came, he began to make all things new. Look at verses 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. Do you remember that quoted in the New Testament? This is what Jesus was doing. When he came on earth, he displayed his glory by his power to heal. So fullness of joy forever is coming. In fact, it's already broken in. We have these foretastes and previews through Christ. They came in his first coming in the way that he 
open the eyes of the blind, unstop the, the ears of the deaf, lame, man, lame people leapt like deers, and mutes could sing for joy. But there was an ultimate display of the glory of the Lord in the first coming of Christ. Where was it most ultimately revealed? It was most ultimately revealed on the cross. When he lived out this high and lifted up vision of Isaiah 53, and he took our sin for us on the cross. So all of that judgment of chapter 34, because you've faced it and you've felt how serious it is and what you deserve, oh my goodness, don't downplay it all, face it. You realize that that's what he took in my place on the cross. He took the full brunt of the just wrath of God in our place. That's what propitiation, that big New Testament word, is all about. So the, yes, the God is a God of wrath, but he's also a God of mercy, and so he devised this glorious plan so that he could both be just and the justifier, satisfying his justice and satisfying his mercy. So Jesus took hell for us. If you downsize hell, you downsize the cross. You face the judgment of God. You face the reality of hell. You are blown away by the glory of the cross. How merciful, how kind, how amazingly loving is God to take that for us, for me. So we deserve to drink the cup of his wrath. Instead, he drunk it to the dregs, set it down. It is finished. There's nothing left but love for those who trust in Jesus as their Savior. And he gives us a different cup. He gives you the cup of salvation. And he fills it with his grace and the riches of his mercy. And so this fullness of joy forever, it's already broken in, not just in literally people's eyes being you know, made to see and ears. Yes, that happened. And that was a huge inbreaking of the kingdom, showing his power and who he was. But to take dead sinners who are rebellious and to make them alive with Christ and to give them all these promises to take us from hell and give us heaven, that is awesome. That is a foretaste, a preview of what Christ came to do. So, even though we still live in this world that's like a wilderness, I mean, how often do you wake up just down in the dumps and downcast and depressed and struggling and there's threats and there's challenges and ah, it's like a wilderness. Your soul is dry. But you know what? If you're in Christ, you were redeemed from slavery to sin. You are heading to the promised land. And even now, waters, look at verse 6, waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Because Jesus is already, he's already begun to save us. He's already rescued us. He's carrying us all the way home where we'll know that joy in its fullness forever. And the, the water, he's the, he's the living water. So it trickles now. They break forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, thirsty ground, springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, you see the reversal. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. 
So this comes as we experience Jesus as the living water. Now he's our shepherd. He makes us lie down in green pastures, leads us beside quiet waters. Isaiah 55 is our experience. Even though we're we're walking through the wilderness, we're like exiles. We're like pilgrims heading home. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? The Lord wants to satisfy our souls with himself and his grace. He leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And surely, goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life and we'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Verse 8, a highway shall be there. It shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. Okay, this is, imagine this like we're heading into the new heavens and the new earth. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. I'm the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. The unclean will not come in. The only way you can be clean is through Jesus. Anybody can be clean through Jesus. But if you reject Jesus, you can't come in. No one comes to the Father through me. And then look at this. This is so cool. Even if they're fools, that's not a derogatory usage. It's kind of like simple. Okay? This is encouraging for us that know how simple we can be and stupid and thick and slow. Even if they're fools, they won't go astray. It's a high way, literally. You can't miss it. (laughs) Like, he can take you home. Like, even if you're simple, you can make it, which is good news, right? So the road into the new heavens and new earth is for those who are following Jesus. But even the simple can find their way home. So in light of this great hope and these promises, let's run. Verses 3 and 4. Strengthen the weak knees and make firm, I'm sorry, the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. So you can actually go from strength to strength through the wilderness in light of these promises and the grace that's yours in Christ. That's why this is quoted in Hebrews 12. Run the race set before you. Set your eyes on Jesus. You know, fix your eyes on Jesus. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come. He's going to set everything to rights one day. You're not going to be suffering, muddling through the wilderness forever. He's going to bring you home. He's going to come and save you. So don't drift. Don't turn away. Let the race that's set before you run it with your eyes fixed on Jesus. He's going to lead you all the way home. And what happens when we come home? Look at this. So sweet. Verse 9 and 10. No lion shall be there. Actually, you know what, Barry? You are being a living illustration of this. So you experience the, the burning, difficult nature of this wilderness, but you have joy over these things, and you know it's coming. He's coming to save you. And so you can have joy even when you have pain. So thank you, Barry, for that living illustration for all of us. So we're going to come home one day, and there's no lion It's going to be there. No ravenous beast will come up on this way. They won't be found there. So don't take this too literalistically. Okay? (laughs) That's great. That's appropriate. Um, You remember the vision in chapter 11, the lion lays down with the lamp. So don't take it too literalistically. No lion. Well, that would undo. It's poetry. Okay? So the point is there's no threats. No more threats. No lion there. No ravenous beast but the redeemed shall walk there. So sweet. The redeemed. This is beautiful. Okay, the redeemer in that culture, the women know this from their Ruth study. The redeemer was the next of kin who would rescue 
a helpless family member by costly sacrifice. So Ruth, Naomi, they were left bereft and empty because husband and sons and husbands, you know, these women, they died. So who's going to take care of these women? Well, the Redeemer would take on the needs of this desperate relative as his own. And that's what Boaz did, and he was a worthy man because he did it. Well, guess what? God says, I'm your Redeemer. I'm going to take on flesh and blood so that I can make you my next of kin, and all your need, I'm going to take it on myself. The costly sacrifice, I will pay it so that I can bless you and care for you. Isn't that awesome that he's our Redeemer? So the redeemed shall walk there. Not, not people that are impressive, like, man, it's such a dead end. If you go the route of Lance Armstrong, well, I just, if I'm good enough in this. Amen. No, we need redeemed. What, a, what an exclusive club that is. Three. Just the good people. I'm glad that's not the way salvation is set up. Okay, so the redeemed shall walk there. The ransomed of the Lord shall return. These elect exiles, like 1 Peter says, coming home, Christian pilgrims, they come to Zion with singing, everlasting joys on their heads. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis, one day we shall get in. He says, at present we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of the morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament and the Old Testament, (laughs) I'd add, are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. We're going to get home. And look at those last few phrases. They shall obtain gladness and joy. Actually, that obtain word, it's stronger. It's like it overtakes you. (laughs) You're going to get just... It's like a flood, whoosh, and it just, it just conquers you. It just overtakes you. How about that for getting, you want to get conquered and overtaken by, by gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing, flee away. So listen to this. Fullness of joy forever. Did you see that? They're going to obtain gladness and joy, and all the sorrow and sighing is going to flee away. So what's wrong with the world's joys? They're not strong enough, and they're not long enough. They don't totally satisfy us, and they don't last. Something's always spoiling our joy. But Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life. Here it is, the way of holiness, following Jesus. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Fullness forever. Yes! Isn't that what you want? So if we downplay, minimize our guilt, oh, we're not really that bad. Downplay, reject God's wrath. Why is this judgment so severe? Reject the eternal punishment that our sin deserves. Man, it's just kind of over the top. You actually end up downsizing or even rendering the cross unnecessary. Okay, so ironically, if you try to take the wrath and judgment of God out of the Bible, you end up taking out the love of God. The measure of the love of God is the violent death on the cross for our sin. The measure of the love of God at Calvary gets redefined if we don't look chapter 34 full in the face. We don't want to downsize the cross. If you try to cut down that 
cross, you're going to lose things you don't want to lose. There's, that's one tree you want to leave standing with all the violence and, and all. So, this day, fullness of joy forevermore, it's coming. So let's, let's strengthen our hands. Are you coming in droopy this morning? Let's, let's strengthen the weak knees. As we meet together in home groups, we can encourage each other and say, the best is yet to come. Nobody can take that away. Let's pray. And we're going to sing a closing song here. Lord, I pray that you'd please just continue to keep our eyes open to see reality and to believe it and to not dodge it or run from it, but look it full in the face, both the severity of your judgment and the sweetness of your grace and mercy in Christ. And I pray that we would run the race that's set before us with endurance because we've got our eyes fixed on Jesus, the one who blazed the trail, the one who runs with us, who strengthens us. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They'll run with wings as eagles. They'll, they'll, they'll rise up with wings as eagles. They'll run and not go weary. They'll walk and not faint. Would you do that renewing, encouraging work so that we can get busy building your kingdom, your we want to see your kingdom come. Use us so that we can draw other people away from that judgment and onto the way of holiness and bring them home to fullness of joy forever with us. In Jesus' name, amen.